So New Life has been in a vision series called um, Seeing Clearly. And so this series is an opportunity for visiting uh, to know what New Life is about, who they are, what they value, what they really care about. And so I encourage you to go back and listen to the first two messages because um, it's going to help you understand this church and community. Today's value is costly, not consumeristic. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts 8, and we'll read verses 4 through 25. I'll be reading from the ESV. Uh, so if you're able, if you can stand with me as I read God's word for us. We do this because we believe that God's word is alive today. And when we read it, he is speaking to us, and so standing is a posture of reverence. So let's give our full attention to the reading of God's word. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lamed were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized. Oh, they have, sorry, they have only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of, hand, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated at this time. I'm going to say a quick word of prayer for us. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. May you open up our ears and our hearts to receive what you have to us. Uh, we ask that you would increase in this place and that we would decrease. Uh, may your glory remain. We need your help. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, every year our family, uh, we go to the optometrist. And um, so I got glasses when I was in fifth grade. And I'm just surprised after 30 years, the routine is surprisingly the same. Right, so you go, and they still do that that eye puffy thing in your eyes. You would think after 30 years, like they would come up with something less anxiety inducing than that, but they still use that to check your eye pressure. They take your blood pressure. 
Then you go into the room. They sit you in that seat. They put this huge mask on. And then they go through each and every lens, right? And then the optometrist will ask you, option one or option two, which one's better? Option two or option one, which is better? And they go with the right, and they go with the left. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, it must be nice to have 2020. You can Google it later, but it's a whole ordeal, right? And at the end, what the optometrist does is uh, he or she flips both lenses on. And then you're looking through, and I'm always amazed every time at how clearly I'm actually able to see things. And equally surprised at how worse, like, my eyes have gotten within the span of a year. You know, my hope today is to help adjust our vision. Because before I tell what the church is supposed to do, if we're not seeing things clearly, we're not going to really be able to get much work done. We're going to bump into things. We're going to misunderstand things. It's a hope to adjust a bit of our vision today. Because I think the church as an institution over the past several years especially has become a little bit hazy and blurry. It's confusing. What is the church? Right, we've seen the church highly politicized, used by both sides of the aisle. And you're wondering what brand of Christianity actually is right. Which one is right? And because of, the uh, because of the church being so highly politicized, it's impacted our perception of the church. Right? On top of an already long list of things that we're looking for a church, now we're asking what, which way does a church lean? To the right or to the left? The pandemic didn't help the church at all. right? Because our experience of the church completely changed. Everything went virtual. Churches that had the means and the resources were able to maintain engagement, but then the churches that didn't weren't able to make that transition. And so when everything reopened, I don't know what happened here in Seattle, but in L.A., what I saw was a mass lateral movement from people leaving their church, home church, because they found a new one during the pandemic. And another thing I realized and I saw was that the ch church was severely atrophied. Every church struggled to find people to serve. And 10% 10 10 of the church was doing 100% of the ministry. And I think we're still feeling the impact of that now. And so both these factors of the social, political, as well as the pandemic, I think warped our view of the church and our even in interactions with the church. And it added fuel to a very prevalent tendency in the American church, and that is consumerism. What can the church do for me? You know, and a part of me understands uh, this kind of phenomenon happening within the landscape of the church. But another part of me deeply grieves because I wonder if this is what Jesus had in mind for his bride and for his church. Questions I want us to deeply consider. What, what I want you to deeply consider today is why are you here? Why are you here? Football season started, right? Seahawks are doing okay. They could do better. But you're here. What are we doing here every Sunday? Well, New Life is an amazingly gifted church, right? Praise and music is amazing. Preaching is awesome. I'm here purely for my children. I want them to grow up and develop with good morals. I'm here seeking community, whatever that is. I'm looking for friends, maybe a significant other. 
I'm here because my spouse forces me to be here. This is what I've known my whole, li- my whole entire life, and so this is part of my weekly routine. Why are we here? Uh, like, uh, like mentioned, I have four kids, and so life is pretty crazy. Uh, I'm constantly looking for ways to be more efficient at home to get things done. I just need to get things done. And so I, I do my research, and I stumbled upon this kind of life hack video. And I realized for almost 40 years of my life, actually, I wasn't using the oven at that age, but maybe 30 years of my life that I was using the oven wrong. Do you guys know that the bottom drawer of the oven isn't for you to store sheets, like cookie sheets and other things? Did you not know that? Do you know what it's for? It's actually to keep food warm. Yeah, right? I'm seeing like, oh, I thought I was the only one like, that, that didn't know. Obviously, this was something that, you know, uh, that a lot of people didn't know. That's why it's called a life hack. Right? So my Thanksgiving, my cooking is going to change now because I found out that the bottom drawer of the oven is not for storage. It's actually to keep food warm. It's amazing to realize how we misuse some of these everyday items that are in our house. And I wonder if it's not the same for the church. Is there something more that God has for you here at New Life than what you're actually here for. Is there something more to this? The book of Acts can help us kind of adjust our vision. Acts is the origin story of the church, right? Before Jesus ascended back to uh, be with his father, he passed the baton to his disciples. He passed it on, and he's like, you now fulfill the mission. But he said, I'm going to give you help. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that aided Jesus in his ministry, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will now reside in the disciples' lives to help them with this mission. So in Acts 2, in an event called Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples. And there, the early church was birthed. Now, although the culture and context is very different, what we can do is track the movement and activities of these spirit-filled apostles and the spirit-empowered church. We could track the movement of the Holy Spirit. And then we can ask then ourselves, are we on track or are we off track as a church? So there are four characteristics of the church that I want us to see. The first thing we're going to see is a scattered witness. Secondly, holistic care. Third, countercultural. And lastly, Christ-centered. First, We see a scattered witness. So the Christian church started in Jerusalem. It made sense because all the apostles were there, right? So it made sense that the church would start there. But not too long after that, uh, persecution and opposition came. Uh, People resisted. You have to remember that the the, the Jews, right, the Jewish faith was prominent in Jerusalem. And so this new Christian community was a disruption to the way of life there. And so they started to face resistance and opposition. And we're told that persecution boiled over when Stephen, right, one of the early leaders of the church, was stoned to death. And what happened was Christians needed to scatter. They had to leave Jerusalem. And so we're told that only the apostles remained and all the other Christians scattered. 
And here we have to pause and, and kind of note and notice that when the church was faced with its greatest challenge and, 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 and the problems, that their reach and their witness actually increased. Isn't that interesting? That when the church was under fire, the gospel actually increased in the area. Right, these Christians, refugees, displaced, found themselves in new and unfamiliar territory. And yet, through it all, God was orchestrating something beautiful. And this is a powerful reminder that even in the most painful and disappointing times of our lives, that God is up to something good. It's hard for us to see it. But through the early church, we learn that he is still doing something good. So the scattering, although caused by persecution, actually fulfilled God's purpose for his church. Verse 4 and verse 5. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. So Jesus' original kind of commission to his disciples can be found in Acts 1.8. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, our mission as a church can be summarized actually in this one word, witness. Witness. We are to live in such a way that points people to Jesus. But notice in those verses, no apostles are mentioned Essentially, this movement, this Christian movement in Samaria had no pastor. It's interesting. It tells us that it was ordinary, everyday people who were being a witness to the gospel. Philip himself wasn't an apostle. He actually waited on tables. He was serving the needs of the widows. It's subtle, but there's a major shift going on here. In the early church. So although the apostles still have a very, had a very important role, which we'll see come, play, uh, come into play later on, the ministry of the gospel is being carried out by farmers, carpenters, shepherds, craftsmen, artists, scribes, and bakers. You know, this idea of scattering is actually a theme we see throughout Scripture. We see it all over scripture. When you look at the original mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve, we see this idea of scattering. And when we see Jesus' great commission, we see similarities to that great mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. Because God told Adam and Eve to cultivate the land, to exercise dominion, to be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. So the Garden of Eden was a starting point. It was a launch point, but that's not the end purpose of God. The purpose of God was the entire earth for it to be filled with his glory. And this is the idea. As those who possess, right, who reflect the image of God, created in his image, when we fill the earth, we are filling the earth with God's glory. But early in the, in the uh, book of Genesis, the early pages, we see something happening. We see scattering halted at the Tower of Babel. It's a very interesting story. People wanted to remain stagnant, stationary, 
make a name for themselves through this huge tower so that they can just stay there. And what does God do? God confuses their language and he scatters them. When we look at the call of Abraham, he calls Abraham to be a blessing so that he could be a blessing to what? All nations. Right? We see God using other nations even to scatter Israel. We see it throughout all the Old Testament and the New Testament. So whether it's through obedience, persecution, or even rebellion, we see God scattering his people for witness. Now the question we need to ask is, how is this relevant for us today? What does scattering look like for us today? So our gathering happens on Sundays, yes, but then we scatter on Monday. We gather on Sundays to scatter on Monday. The primary place we are called to be a witness of the gospel is not actually in this space, but in all the other spaces we occupy Monday through Saturday. At home, at work, or at school. But our approach will look very different than those scattered in the early church. They led with preaching. But in this post-Christian world, I think we need to lead with practice. With practice. Especially in a place like Seattle. Jesus told his followers, you are to be light, to be salt. Right? Salt preserves things from decaying. Salt adds flavor and goodness to things that are already good. Light, light helps us to see, right? It gives us hope. Jesus said, let your light shine so that others may see your good work and give glory to God. You know, it's so easy to compartmentalize our lives between the spiritual and secular and so on Sunday, it's spiritual, and the workplace is secular. But when we look at the early Christians, they didn't have this duality of thinking and of living. They saw everything as integrated, as a part of God working through them to be a witness. So yes, Sunday is very important. Gathering is very important, but not for the reason that many of us think It is for us to be cultivators of grace wherever we go. We come here so that tomorrow we can be cultivators of grace in every space, in every sphere. Your vocation as an artist, project manager, legal and healthcare professional, teacher, accountant, chef, Business owner, musician, homemaker, software, software engineer, architect, counselor is a very means in which God loves and cares for his creation. The way that you work, your work points to God's goodness. And so this idea of just simply consuming on Sundays is not the point. Yes, there's an aspect of consumption. We worship together. We hear a message but it's for the purpose of being cultivators of grace in every aspect of our lives. So you and I are called to be cultivators of grace. 
See, there are spaces in which I or Pastor Eric cannot go into. We're actually not even invited into. But you, in your vocation, you have access to people in places that we can't go. And that is why the church is here. That is why we're so diverse in our giftings. is so that we can share with the world how good God is. Secondly, we see a pursuit of holistic care. Holistic care. For a non-apostle, Philip was actually quite outstanding and amazing. He had amazing abilities. Verse 6, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Philip had a very powerful healing ministry. But what does he heal? Who does he heal? Those who had actually spiritual illnesses, but actually physical ones as well. It wasn't just spiritual, like demon-possessed people. It's the lame and the paralytic. And so when we talk about gospel renewal, we're not only talking about new spiritual realities, but a pursuit of holistic renewal of mind, body, and spirit. All of it matters to God. We see this all throughout scripture. Elijah, God's prophet, when he was exhausted and depressed, what does God wake him up to do? Not once, but twice. What does he do? Wake up, eat. Eat. Jesus not only forgave sins, but he healed diseases and disabilities. He not only taught the gospel, but he hung out with the outcast and marginalized. After Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus goes looking for Peter. And before restoring him, what does he have ready for Peter to do? Eat breakfast. Breakfast. He prepared a meal for him. Mind, body, and spirit. You know, there's a common saying that the church isn't supposed to be a museum for saints, but rather a hospital for the sick. I I love it. But we have to really think about the implications of that. All right, there's a unique odor to a hospital that kind of turns our stomach. Every room is filled with patients, with a variety of different pains and illnesses and disease. Right? That's all within a hospital. But also within a hospital is an interdisciplinary team who cares for the patients, social workers, chaplains, nurses, surgeons, doctors, janitors, all of them, whether directly or indirectly, is providing care for the people that need it. The church is supposed to be a hospital for the sick? Do we smell it? Are we a part of it? Or do we still like just kind of keep an arm's distance because we don't want to be affected by it? It's an all-hands-on-deck approach to gospel renewal. All hands on deck. So in the early church, what what did it look like for the early church? People opened up their homes. People opened up their homes. They gave away their property and possessions for those in need. Those who had the ability to teach, they taught. Others actually literally waited on tables, cleaning up after people. 
Others visited those in prison, made space for the poor and disenfranchised. The early church was a powerful force because it was all hands on deck for gospel renewal. Church, I want want us to listen very carefully to this. The goal of the church isn't for us just to wait to get to heaven. It's actually to live the life of heaven here and now. To see comprehensive, holistic restoration and healing of our entire lives and communities. Everyone here sitting in these chairs, you have a unique gift. You have actually a unique experience that God gave you so that you can share with others who need it for the building up of this community. And so for you, it might be you have a lot of space at home so you can host a community group. For others, it's to join a ministry team that's in need. You know, a new youth group started here, and our youth is so precious What I remember from my youth is not so much of the preaching or the lessons, but actually the older brothers and sisters that poured into me, who stuck with me. It might be to initiate a coffee or a lunch date with someone you've been seeing regularly at church, but they come alone, and they actually hang out alone after service. Maybe it's just that simple step. Hey, I've been seeing you around. You want to grab coffee? Maybe it's for you to just sit down without offering any advice, And just sit there with someone that's in pain and suffering. Just be there for them. A ministry of presence. It might be for you to give regularly. To give regularly. You know, tithing is one of the hardest things to do. I I feel it. It's so hard. But actually, our hearts need this practice. Why? Because tithing... What we're saying, we're not going to allow money to dictate my life. I'm not going to allow money to have a grip on my heart. And so at the top of the month, setting aside whatever it is, it's, it's a declaration that my heart is not, uh, money doesn't own my heart, but also that I will trust in God for my daily bread. So tithing is actually very important. And because I'm not at this church, I could tell you to tithe. I feel very comfortable telling you to. But it's because our hearts need it. Our hearts need it. And I'm not going to tell you a percentage. Just start small and be consistent. That's it. And at the top of the month, your presence and your gifts are important to this church. You have something to give that another brother or sister actually needs. You have a ministry. In other words, you have a ministry here. You know, when God had envisioned his church, he didn't envision a pastor doing all the work of the ministry. He envisioned a nation of priests, a nation of priests, where every one of us here mediates the presence of Jesus to others. And so you have a ministry here. Third, the early church was countercultural. You know, in the charge that Jesus gave to his disciples, Samaria would have triggered them in a bad way because there was beef between Jews and Samaritans. I can't go into the history. I know Pastor Eric talked about it not too long ago. You can go back and listen to it. But there was a long history between the Jews and Samaritans. Culturally, ethnically, and religiously, they were enemies. 
But Jesus deliberately told them in his commission, you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And at that point, out of it, out, if I was a disciple, I would have cringed. I'm like, what? Really? Those guys? The scattering took the church to uncomfortable and undesirable places. But this is precisely the movement of grace. This is what grace does. It takes us to places that we don't want to go. Why? Because Jesus came to die for not saints, but sinners. Those that weren't even looking for him. Those that were still in their sin, Jesus condescended, took on flesh, right? Lived in our experience, but then died the death that we deserved. You know, when a good Jew would have told Jesus, hey, go around Samaria. You don't want to go through it. Go around it. What does Jesus do? He deliberately goes through it. And then he encounters this woman at a well, a serial adulterer, and transforms this woman's life and the city that this woman was in. Incredible. Countercultural. Subversive. Uncomfortable. You know, we're living in a time where lines are sharper than ever. The divides are so clear. And we're being pushed further and further and deeper and deeper into our own tribes. Right? With another presidential election around the corner, I anticipate more of that. What I want to challenge us, we got to resist this binary way of thinking. Don't fall in the trap of this world where it's just one or the other. These categories are not biblical categories, brothers and sisters. Don't take the bait, especially the church. We are called to be an alternative community, not resembling the divisions of this world, but reflecting a profound unity that we find in Jesus Christ. Because uniformity is so unimpressive, is it not? Uniformity doesn't impress anyone. You can find that anywhere. You have news channels for that. The church's goal is unity despite our differences, despite our opinions, our experiences, our traditions, or our cultures. Because grace threads us together as one. So church, we're not trying to create a moat around this church, preventing people in, the church is called to build bridges to allow people to experience God's grace. But to build bridges, it comes at a cost. It is very costly to be countercultural because it's uncomfortable to be with people that are different than you, who don't share the same ideologies or even politics or traditions. So it's going to come at a cost. It's going to cost your pride. Because grace actually would ask more questions than make statements. We'd rather ask more questions than make statements. Because grace will call us to understand rather than to be understood. To be quick to listen than to speak. See, the church, we need to be an alternative community in the city, but not of the city.
Now we have to remember who was sitting at Jesus' table. On one side, you had Matthew, a tax collector who's working for the occupation. And on the other side, you have Simon the Zealot who was trying to overthrow the occupation. This was Jesus' community. This is the people that he wanted to be on mission with. Crazy that he would have, you will find those two people sitting and eating with Jesus at the same table. Scattered witness, holistic care, countercultural, and lastly, the foundation of the early church that made them who they were was that they were Christ-centered. Christ-centered. So before the, before the gospel reached Samaria, there was a man who was revered and even worshipped. He was named Simon Magnus or Simon the Sorcerer. He had amazing abilities, right? He himself called himself great, and everyone else agreed. This is a great man. And so when the apostles heard that the news of revival was uh, the news of revival in Samaria, they sent Peter and John to confirm it. And upon arriving, they realized they were baptized, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit, which was which is unusual. Okay, this was a very unusual occurrence because usually baptism and the receiving of the Holy Spirit happens simultaneously, normally. So this was a very unusual event. So then Peter and John, what they did was they laid hands on the believers and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now Simon, seeing this, was amazed. And he offered them money. Hey, I'm going to give you some money. Help me to do the same. Give me this ability. And what does Peter say? He strongly rebukes him, asking him to repent. Asking him to repent. Now we don't know if he did, but there are two things that we learn from this interaction between Simon and the apostles. First, historically, the greatest threat to the church doesn't come from the outside. It actually comes from within. Discord, division, fractures within the community, bad actors wanting to have all the power for themselves. Number one. Number two, although the gospel is good news, it disrupts the very system of our lives. It's a disruption to the system of our lives. You know, in this world, we're told that we need to learn, earn, achieve, and perform to have any worth or significance. And many of us were living that life. We're working really hard. We're doing all that we can to be worth something, to have significance, to gain power, to have upward mobility. Simon represents someone who has reached the heights of their careers. He was great. He had status. He had significance. But he's also a sober reminder, in order to keep it, you got to keep earning. you got to keep achieving. You have to keep performing. It's never-ending. See, the gospel disrupted the, the way of life in Samaria, and it disrupted Simon's life because there was a radical transformation in the city. But this radical transformation did not come by exertion. It didn't come through a power struggle. It didn't come from performance. It came because of grace. Unmerited favor. Grace. 
See, grace shakes the very foundation in which we build our very lives upon, in which we form our identity, our significance, and worth. Grace crumbles all of it, all of it. See, here's the irony, the great irony, and actually really makes me sad about Simon. He wanted to use the gospel for, for the very thing that the gospel had already offered him. Isn't that ironic? Let me say that again. He wanted to use the gospel for the very thing that the gospel already offered him. Status, worth, significance in Jesus Christ. He missed it. In wanting to use the gospel, he completely missed what the gospel gave him. Simon was engaging what I call cost-benefit spirituality. It asked the question, what do I need to pay in order to benefit? And here's the thing with cost-benefit spirituality. Because, because it's transactional, there are limits and conditions to our worship, our service, and our giving. Why? Because we'll keep all the receipts. We'll keep all of it. And so then when life doesn't go the way that you want to go, you say, hey, but I go to church. I serve in this ministry. I give my money. How come my life is not going the way that I envisioned? Cost, benefit, spirituality. Transactional. In the gospel, we have the inverse. We reap all the benefits of a sacrifice of another. That's the gospel. We reap all the benefits, not by a cost that we pay, but by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are justified. We are forgiven and reconciled with Jesus. We are sanctified. We are set apart. We are made holy, actually, in, in, in the gospel. Right? We are adopted as sons and daughters. We are co-heirs with Christ and we are awaiting glorification when Jesus returns. All of these benefits are ours by faith in Jesus Christ. We did nothing for it. He did everything for it. Jesus paid the ransom cost for our sins. He absorbed our shame and guilt. He was consumed by God's rightful judgment against sin on that cross. He paid the ultimate cost. And not only did he die for you, he rose again for you. So here's the thing. Because we did nothing to earn these blessings, we can't do anything to lose them. We didn't do anything to earn it. Therefore, we can't do anything to lose it. And so what does this do? This creates a very unique, unfamiliar experience. It disarms the very thing that plagues our hearts and our minds. How? it gets rid of fear and anxiety. Because if it's not up to my performance and it's just a gift that God gives to us, no more anxiety or fear. I don't need to prove myself because Christ pr proved it for me. And then it disarms another aspect of our lives that plagues our lives and ruins relationships, pride. I can't boast about this because I didn't do anything. So it brings me down. It humbles me and it makes me grateful. And so it's not something that I can just hold, I need a grip to, but it's something I can be open-handed about, and now I want to share this with others. The 
good news to share with others. The gospel radically transforms the motivation of our hearts. And even how we pursue and think about religion, it changes it all. Because Jesus came to us. He paid the cost so that we can benefit. So the Christian journey is not about getting new or more things, but rather about uncovering and exploring in deeper ways what's already been given to us. That's the Christian journey. See, religion will say to you, you got to become to belong. Christianity says you first belong, now learn to become. You are loved, forgiven, you are worthy, you are royalty, you are significant in Christ Jesus. Now learn and discover what that really means. And so if you're here today and you haven't received the gift of grace, I want you to consider the cost and the sacrifice of Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. Consider receiving that gift of grace. And if if that's you, talk to Pastor Derek, Pastor Clara, Pastor Eric, Kenny. You have so many pastors here. Talk to any one of them. See, the beauty of the Christian life is that we get to do this together. We get to uncover the gospel gifts together, to learn how to become together. And we could do that not by consuming, but being cultivators of grace, by caring for one another holistically, being countercultural and extending grace to those who are different than us. And if we commit ourselves to this, verse 8 will be something that you can probably say that's true for you. So there was great joy in that city. We are here for the city of Bothell, for the city of Seattle. So when new life is doing well, the city will experience a joy that they never experienced before. So may you pursue Jesus together for the joy of this city and the glory of his name.